Welcome to Textile Update, the podcast where we can share our passion for textiles, fibers, and yarns. This is Gwendolyn Hustvedt. This is the second of four episodes where I talk about fancy weaves. In this episode, I'll be covering jacquard and lino weaves. At this point, we're still discussing figured weaves. So fancy weaves that have some kind of little design in the surface. In the last episode, we talked about dobby weaves, which uh, are, are characterized by small geometric repeating designs that make use of fairly simplistic mechanical uh, attachments that can be added to a more basic loom in order to give it this ability to switch between twill, satin, plain weave, and other unnamed uh, types of interlacing patterns, but they're all fairly basic. The jacquard loom, however, was a major advancement. Uh, jacquard is a French word, right? And um, so uh, uh, certainly the French uh, bear some credit for this. Although actually we saw quite a lot of innovation with jacquard looms in Paisley, a city in Scotland. And if you think, well, hey, wait a minute, Paisley, isn't that a, a sort of a a swirl shape that we see in designs. Well, that swirl shape is actually called a Buddha, B-U-D-A, and or B-U-D-A-H, and it is a Indian uh, motif coming from India. Represents life. Squint, you'll see it. Sort of related to pomegranate seeds, I believe. And uh, uh, in cultural appropriation, uh, it was renamed Paisley after the city that began to make knockoffs of Indian shawls from the Kashmir region that included a lot of these Buddha motifs. So people just started calling them Paisley to refer to where they had got their knockoff from. Um, it would be kind of like if, um, let's see, if uh, Hermes had some sort of uh, signature branding shape like a stirrup, and then H&M started knocking it off and after a while instead of calling it uh, a stirrup, we called it an H&M. Right? That, that would be sort of like what happened. At any rate, I digress. The point is, uh, making a motif like a paisley motif, it's not small, it's not geometric, it's complex and curvilinear. This was only possible once we had developed looms that were actually capable of making these large curvilinear designs. The jacquard looms have more than 35 harnesses that control the heddles, and basically every single warp yarn within the loom is individually controlled. So we can't do this with a stick with nails punched in it. We actually do this with cards with holes punched in it. And if that sounds like the hole punch cards that were used to operate early computers, uh, those were developed based on punch cards that were used in knitting machines, uh, which we'll talk about in the next uh, topic about knitting. However, um, the knitting machines got the idea from the jacquard looms. So, uh, and of course, early computers also used uh, parts from looms. So every single warp yarn is individually controlled, and that means that we can, in fact, make a shape that has a very subtle curved edge because we're not moving the yarns in sets of four or five. We're moving the yarns one at a time. Now, uh, fabrics that I'm going to talk about here 
weren't just suddenly invented in the um, uh, you know 1700s, 1600s when jacquard looms were developed. They were actually being manufactured in China uh, much, much uh, earlier than the invention of the jacquard loom. However, they were actually created using a loom that didn't use harnesses at all, a loom where every single yarn was individually controlled via a little string, and a loom had basically a little boy that sat up at the top and pulled up warp yarns in a set pattern uh, according to the instructions that were given to him by the, the weaver. And when he was too heavy to sit on top of the loom, he was demoted for a while, swept the floor, did other chores until he was old enough to actually begin to learn how to weave. And uh, yes, sounds like... Um, quite the use of, of child labor. Uh, so these uh, designs, uh, things like brocades, are actually much older than the invention of this loom. But the mechanical loom meant that suddenly we were not paying for the time of a small child, for the years of the life of a small child, which should be expensive. We were paying for a much briefer time uh, of the life of a machine. And uh, that's kind of the history of, of modern fashion right there. So I'm just going to introduce you to a few of the fabrics that are made with the jacquard loom and talk about how you can tell them apart. As you can tell, we could have a whole separate discussion about jacquard weaving, and someday I'll, I'll have the time to do that. But just for now, I want you to be able to look smart when you say, oh, that's a damask or that's a brocade. Now, damask is named after Damascus, which was the one of the terminal uh, endpoints of the Silk Road. So these uh, early, uh, very intricately woven uh, weaves would have been brought from China on the Silk Road, which goes through the Gobi Desert, over the Himalayas, into Afghanistan, through Persia, which we now call Iran, and into Iraq, which uh, used to be just part of the larger, uh, larger Syria. And Damascus was the capital. Some of the silk, of course, went to Istanbul as part of the Byzantine Empire there. But damask is made from spun yarns or cottons, and so damask would uh, end up in Damascus, and hence the name. Uh, they have elaborate floral patterns. Uh, very often it's just in one color, such as white or cream, occasionally maybe two colors. And the benefit of the damask is that it has a reversible weave. So it's really just doing these satin floats on the ground of a twill or a plain weave much like the Dobby weave, just manipulating the different types of weave. However, uh, we'll add in a bit of color if we need to, and the front and the back will basically both look attractive in some way. And uh, this means that it's great for things like uh, tablecloth, this where if it gets a small stain or wax droplet on one side, you can flip it over, or bedding or bed covering or drapery where you really want both sides of the fabric to look nice. Uh, and so that, that difference in uh, uh, the floats on the ground, the, again, the difference between a jacquard and a dobby would be that the, that the figure is now large and curvilinear. So big, huge roses, not tiny little geometric roses. Big leaves, not little leaves. Uh, and that is to contrast with a brocade. A brocade uses filament yarns, so it's in the uh, distant past was always made with silk because that was the only filament yarn we had. Now, very often made with synthetics. Uh, almost always a brocade will be a synthetic. If it's a silk brocade, you're paying good money for that. And the interior designers may be able to get into that. 
It's used a lot in interior design for things like upholstery or, you know, gowns of a certain type uh, for like a skirt and uh, the, a, a garment that has a lining because the back side is not pretty. It's going to be a mess of the, all of the yarns that aren't being used in the front side. Uh, you can distinguish between the brocade and the damask not only because of the difference between the spun and the filament yarns that we see between the two, but also that the patterns in brocades are much more about contrasting colors and metallic yarns. Um, so even though it is, again, about a, a raised floral figure on a ground, uh, very often using satin or twill to make the difference, uh, color will be thrown in very often or metallic yarns will be thrown in. And the whole point is it doesn't have to be reversible. So we don't have to really be careful about what it looks like. Interestingly, uh, the Descartes loom has also been used to make another type of textile that used to be handwoven, and that is a tapestry. And uh, even now, uh, uh, you can visit a place like, um, what's it called, the Dovecot uh, Tapestry Facility in Edinburgh. Uh, we, I took students there when we were uh, doing our trip to Scotland, our textiles trip, and uh, we could see uh, it was a two-story room that they were working in. We were in a balcony up on the second story, and these huge textile uh, looms were basically tall standing frames with warp yarns that went from the top of the frame down to the floor and were held by weights. And then the yarns were woven in one at a time. And we would, we would say these are discontinuous filling yarns. So a filling yarn might only go three or four inches in a certain spot, and the raw ends are sticking out the back of the tapestry weave. So the point is the front of the, the tapestry looks great. The back is... Um, uh, a bit of a mess. Uh, we saw um, some photos that particular uh, tapestry studio had designed tapestries to go around the top of a of a sunken banquet hall at a secret society in London. I mean, not secret, secret, but it was a banking society, you know, centuries old, uh, recently had admitted women members uh, and wanted to uh, sort of redecorate the space to kind of update the imagery that they were using to help the women members feel included. And so they, they had this, uh, uh, the room itself was two stories, although it was all underground, and they had the tapestry designed and put around three of the walls of basically what would be one whole story up above, with sort of the story of the history of their banking society is an example, right? Uh, tapestries would have been developed in uh, medieval times to uh, cover up damp, moldy uh, uh, stone walls. Um, later on in certain regions such as Sicily, uh, quilts were actually developed to serve the same purpose, right? Layers of fabric stitched together with an insulative purpose. So people are always like, oh, it's so amazing when quilts that look good on the bed look good on the wall. Well, quilts started on the wall and then moved to the bed. Uh, and so, of course, they look good on the wall. Um, the tapestries are uh, very dense and heavy. So occasionally, we'll use a tapestry for something like the upholstery on a chair. And it's different from a jacquard because it's really heavy and dense. Uh, it's different from a brocade because it's heavy and dense and uses spun yarns. So these three choices you say, is it spun or is it filament, right? If it's filament, then it's brocade. If it's spun, it could be tapestry or it could be damask. And then if you're looking at multicolored discontinuous filling yarns that are very thick, 
you're looking at tapestry. Of course, jacquard looms were used to weave tapestries to make them very inexpensive. Uh, my family actually has one of these tapestries that were manufactured in France right at the end of World War I and sold to what were called the Doughboys, the Americans who arrived right at the end of World War I to sort of... Um, give it the final push to the end of the war uh, and then came back to the United States with bottles of French perfume and machine made French uh, Belgian lace and these tapestries. Uh, so uh, it looks like a, a fancy, you know, handwoven tapestry, but it's actually just woven on a jacquard loom. So uh, if you have a swatch kit with samples of uh, fabric, you might have a sample of the tapestry and you'll be able to see uh, how much thicker it is compared with a brocade. As I said before, I could have talked for a whole episode or more just about the jacquard loom and, and how it operates or what it means, but I really wanted to focus more on empowering you to talk about the fabric that is produced using this particular loom. I'm now going to throw in an additional weave into this episode, the Lena weave. Uh, the Lena weave is actually very similar to the Dobby weave in the sense that uh, we just manipulate a few of the yarns. Uh, in the Dobby weave, you'll notice I mentioned that there was the possibility of lifting up a warp yarn and moving it over, right, sideways a couple of yarns, weaving it in and then moving it back. So this option of kind of switching the places of the, of the warp yarns was something that was taken advantage of almost right away to produce this particular type of lino weave. And uh, it's in the fancy weave section, even though it does not have a figure in it. So it's a tiny little category that, um, you know, just is all its own. And what happens is two warp yarns are... Uh, uh, one is lifted, a filling yarn is uh, put in place, and then the yarn is lowered. But as it's lowered, it actually switches places with the yarn next to it, the yarn it always switches places with, its pair. So I, I want you to take your two fingers and actually cross them, right? And imagine that between the two knuckles of the two crossed fingers, you had a filling yarn. Well, that's what happened, right? The filling yarn was put between those two warp yarns that are now crossed. And then uh, between the tips of your fingers, you could imagine you had another filling yarn. And if your fingers were longer and more flexible, you would end up having a, a, a cross and a filling yarn and a cross back and a filling yarn and a cross and a filling yarn and a cross back and a filling yarn. Well, who cares? What's the benefit of this? The benefit was we were suddenly able to manufacture fabric that was sturdy. The filling yarns can't move. They can't wiggle around. The fabric won't distort. But it has the same permeability as a very loosely woven fabric like cheesecloth. So the advantages are that it's sheer and open. It is very strong and does not have yarn slippage. We, in fact, use a lino weave without the permeability. We don't leave an open space between the two warp yarns like we might in, oh, I don't know, a screen for a window, um, which can be lino woven. We'll use them much more closely together to make the selvage, the tightly woven edge that holds filling yarns into almost all uh, machine manufactured fabric. So this air permeability and light permeability with strength and low yarn slippage meant for the very first time after this weave was invented, we had a fabric that could be placed over windows to prevent the entry of insects 
mosquitoes and flies, right, that would were distracting and in some cases dangerous to health, right? Malaria would be spread through mosquitoes. So this netting that we could make that was very sturdy, suddenly we could use it all sorts of places. And uh, so the Lino Weave, uh, it can be used in apparel fabric for, for sheer tops and things, but mostly it's used as sort of curtain or window fabric. There's two uh, types of fabric that are different as, as is typical because one is made with filament yarns and one is made with warp yarns. Uh, I'm sorry, spun yarns. That is very often the reason why a fabric has a different name right? because it's, it is substantially different. It's no longer smooth and shiny, right? It's now soft and fuzzy. So if we make a Lena weave, sort of a curtain sheer fabric with filament yarns, it's called a marquisette. If we make it with uh, spun yarns, similar but usually even more open, it's called casement cloth. Casement is actually the name of a kind of window, right? Casement windows, uh, which were invented because you only needed very small panes of glass, so it was kind of inexpensive. And if you think this Lino weave kind of makes lots of small square openings, so the name sticks. Whereas Marquisette, I don't know, I, obviously it's a French name and uh, probably was the sort of fabric that only wealthy people like Marquises could afford to use in windows of their carriages and that sort of thing to, to you know, uh, keep the flies from, from the dirty streets and the rabble from entering their carriages as they busted through on their way to a cake eating party with Marie Antoinette. We uh, will also see Lino weave used without a name in particular in things like a thermal blanket where we want to have very low twist yarns that are napped. Napping is when we raise a soft fuzz on the surface and so we can now have a lot of air which creates thermal retention and we might see it in things like dish rags uh, because uh, you know we may want to have kind of a, a rough nubbly surface to help us scrub well right and to allow it to dry quickly so that it doesn't mildew. Do. Uh, but those don't have particular names. There's just end uses that might use a Lino weave. Now I'm going to get back to that chenille yarn. You probably have forgotten all about it, but a long time ago I talked about chenille yarn at the very end of the fancy yarn lecture. And I talked about how chenille yarn was this sort of big, fuzzy, caterpillar looking yarn that was made using a weaving method. Lino weave is the weaving method. So what we do is we use filling yarns that are really uh, low twist, right? Spun yarns, very uh, soft yarns. And we weave it and then we cut warp wise between each set of two twisted warp yarns to create the yarn. And so now what we have is it seems like we have uh, like a corkscrew yarn. So two plies that are twisted around each other. Only inside every twist there's another very short yarn stuck into the twist. Now chenille yarns are not very stable. That yarn that's in the twist can come out but all of the soft fuzzy ends from that cut yarn spread out and create this kind of caterpillar surface. So uh, just how innovative for people to realize that they could use a, a cut apart woven fabric to make a new type of yarn. Got to be really impressed. All right so that is the end of uh, both um, figured weaves and lino weaves in the next episode I'll be moving on to talk about oh let's see there's all kinds of things I'll talk about probably about pile um, uh, carpeting and that sort of thing why not let's do that next <music>